From New York City to Los Angeles, Powered Up Talk Radio is giving women of all ages permission to live the life they'd always dreamed of. Each week, Powered Up Talk Radio explores innovative ways to stay focused in a world that's experiencing dramatic changes. Find out who you are, discover your purpose, and challenge yourself to be all you can be, right here, right now. Here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin. everybody, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm so excited today to have Dr. Charles Garfield today as my guest, and he wrote a book called The Wisdom Years, and you guys know I talk a lot about great reads and great books, but this one I think is particularly, first of all, it's well-written, it's clear, it's easy to follow, and it talks about growing older with joy, fulfillment, resilience, and no regrets, and you know I'm a big, big proponent of resilience, and What I noticed as I read through this book is it mirrored a lot of the thoughts and feelings that I was having that I was not really able to articulate or share with my friends. And I really was kind of a source of shame for me that I was going through these transitions because I didn't see these things happening around me. And if you're like me and you're having certain thoughts about growing older and what what is life? What's the meaning of life? You know, why am I here? All those big, big existential questions. You're going to be happy to pick up a copy of The Wisdom Years. And we're so lucky to be able to talk to Dr. Charles Garfield today, who wrote this book. And the first question I'm going to ask you, Dr. Garfield, is why? Why write this book? Well, I started going through the same changes that I document in the book. And I started asking other people of a certain age, people in their 50s usually, and sometimes 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, were any changes obvious to you? Are any changes obvious to you? Everybody said yes. They all talked about what those changes were, and the changes were very similar. They had to do with a shift from wanting to succeed and climb the ladder and achieve and get ahead, and all of those things that are appropriate during the adult stage and they now talked about a different set of values in their, in their wisdom years. The reason I called the book Our Wisdom Years is because it's a different stage of life. And people started having different motivations. They started caring about different things. They actually cared about two things most frequently in later life. And you hear it so frequently if you talk to older people. They talk about people they love and who love them. And they talk about work that they're most proud of that made an impact, a positive impact in the world, a positive impact on somebody else's life. Love and work turned out to be much more important than climbing the ladder and getting ahead and being a success. Well, and I think, Dr. Garfield, for some of us, that's a really scary proposition. I know it was for me. You know, I was was big in corporate America. I had my charity works, but everything was big. Dr. Garfield, it was like, how many toys can I get for Toys for Tots? How many pajamas for the pajama program? Like everything was goal centered, go, 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 you know, and I was an athlete. So it was in alignment with everything. Then as I approached my early forties and then into my early fifties, I started noticing like a peacefulness with me about 
you know, it was more about the kids I served rather than the number of pajamas. It was more about how I was relating with my family, my friends, my kids, than it was with, you know, getting an award or getting my picture in the paper. Those were all good things. But I thought I was losing my mojo. That's, that's what I thought. I thought something was wrong with me. And it was only until years later that I realized, no, this is a natural evolution. And it's actually what's right with me. You're smart enough to figure that out. A lot of people are not as fortunate as you are. They, they do think there's something wrong with them, mm-hmm. that they have lost their mojo, that there's something about aging that makes it more difficult for them to be successful and be, a, be an achiever. But in reality, it's those very values that are part of the past, that they're moving into a different stage of life that can be just as fulfilling and in in many instances, more fulfilling than anything you've lived before. Well, one of the things that I found, Dr. Garfield, and I see it reflected in your book, is I still had my desires to change the world. I still had the desire to create things, you know, that I've had since I was little. But how I went about it was gentler and more towards the greater good. Whereas prior to that, I was, you know, very mission focused, very laser focused, and a little bit like get out of my way or get rolled over. And I was pushing a lot against barriers and the powers that be. And then I think as I got a little older, I realized I don't have to push so hard. There is a way to finesse, there's a way to work with people and to work more with the energy that I had versus trying to corral that energy. And it was just was a very different way, but it became more powerful. And I actually became more successful, not less successful, which was really to my great surprise. Yeah. It, what's interesting about your story, and I wish I had interviewed you for the mm-hmm. book, but what's interesting about your story is your capacity to reflect, that you're able to think about things, that you're able to evaluate your motivations and whether it's your life is working for you, many people are not reflective in that way. And one of the things I really cover in the book is how to be more reflective, how to, we call it introspection, how to really think intelligently about your own motivations and and what would leave you most fulfilled in your life. Um, A lot of people think they just have to keep on grinding it out, and they do so with less motivation and less fulfillment. And that's always a mistake. You can, you can build a different life based on different values during your wisdom years. Dr. Garfield, I'm just going to stop you for a minute and thank our sponsor. And you were talking about fulfillment. What is, can you define fulfillment for me? Because I really didn't understand what it felt like till I became fulfilled. You know, I thought happiness, money, things, kids, dogs, trips, you know, all the goodies in life meant fulfillment, but I didn't recognize it till I actually felt it. Can we talk a little bit about what does fulfillment look like, taste like, feel like? Absolutely. The one word that really captures fulfillment best for me and for other people during their wisdom years is the word aliveness. What lights you up? What lets you be what, what leaves you with the feeling of being most alive, happiest with your life? And it, it's an enduring thing. It's not, just, it's not just an episode like a good trip or making some money or, or achieving a goal, which makes you feel good for a little bit and then it disappears and then you're empty again. No, aliveness stays with you. And that's where the enduring fulfillment comes from. What lights you up 
so that you stay fulfilled over a long period of time. If some people, you know, this won't surprise you at all, but some of the older people said to me, my grandchildren, when I see my grandchildren, I light up. It leaves me most fulfilled. It feels like the best thing that ever happened in my life. Uh, it doesn't have to be grandchildren. Not everybody has kids or grandchildren. It can be a work that you're very, very proud of. You hear people move in their wisdom years toward artistic activities. Mm -hmm. They start wanting to paint, or they start wanting to be sculptors, or they start wanting to do things with their hands that they never did before, that, that bring them a kind of enduring aliveness that lights them up. They can't wait to do it, rather than having to grind it out the way they did when they were younger. See, I love that because, the, you know, the words I was using was, I'm awake. Like, I felt awake for the first time maybe since I was a little kid, you know. And you wake up in the morning absolutely excited for your day, even though there's no big meeting to hold or no big trip to take or no big – you're just alive and awake to see what the day will bring. And one of the key indicators that, you know, I identified in myself in your book was the excitement to do something where there was no tangible reward. You know, like I started teaching the swim team, you know, I was a swimmer and I swam in college. And so our little town had a swim team. So I volunteered to be the conditioning and fitness coach. There was no money involved. There was no anything. These kids didn't know me. I didn't know them. There was no great big reward, but I couldn't wait to do it. Like I couldn't wait to give, to do, to be. And it had nothing to do with the old reward system that I was accustomed to. That's the key. It's not the old reward system. It's a new set of rewards. When you see a kid's face light up, that's a reward. When you, when you know that you can't wait to get there to do the activity, the activity itself is the reward, not anything you get from it, but the thing itself. People who take up painting or acting or sculpting in their later years will tell me that it's the activity itself that lights them up. They can't wait to do it. It's not finishing it and having it done. That may, that may make them feel good also, but it's the doing of it rather than the end product. Right, the outcome. And I think, you know, when we're younger, especially in our young adult years, you know, everything was outcome driven, you know, get the project done, you know, get this job, get this car, get this house, you know, the end result was, 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 you know, the outcome driven. And what I'm finding is that, you know, as hokey dokey as it sounds, you know, everybody says, enjoy the journey, enjoy the journey. You know, I didn't understand what that meant because I was so busy blowing through the journey to get to my outcome. Then all of a sudden I'm like, hey, I'm kind of enjoying this journey. And I can even equate it to our radio shows and the difference, you know, in 16 years of producing these shows in the beginning, I was like, okay, we got to get these people lined up. We got to get this done. We got to get these sponsors lined up, blah, 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 blah. Now to be fair, all of those are in place. Now all those systems feed in the sponsors come in, the hosts come in, the guests come in, all these things come into my wheelhouse now, but I've learned how much I really enjoy like talking to you and, and exploring these ideas, whatever those ideas may be. And I'm less concerned about, oh, do I have the right sponsor? Is the sponsor in place? Is the, the guest in place? Did we get all the dots crossed and the T's, you know, dotted? Anything under the sun that I could worry about, I would. Now I show up 
and I just enjoy what I do. And it's sometimes just the best part of my day. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. The, the two questions that really support what you're saying that you hear from older people a lot are, who is my soul calling me to be? Yeah. And what is my soul calling me to do? It's an internal thing. And whether you're comfortable with the word soul or whether you want to call it an inner sense or, or my sense of reflection, whatever you want to call it, my, my knowing, my inner knowing of what is best for me to do and who, who do I really want to be at this stage of my life. And that kind of reflection is the kind of thing it sounds like you were very good at it at an early stage. Other people take a while to get to it, but it really blossoms a lot during our wisdom years. Well, I got to tell you, it's my dad, you know, and my dad, you know, he's this, you know, engineer. He was former Navy, straighten up, fly right, you know, couldn't be more buttoned up tight. But he used to do something that I would watch a lot, Dr. Garfield. And I, you know, if I had to put something on my dad's grave when he dies, it's going to be he wrote on napkins. And I, <laughs> I used to see him all the time. Like we would, you know, he would be working and sometimes he would take me to work with him and we'd go to lunch. That was a big treat. And he would take a napkin and he would fold it over and then he would take his pen and he would jot down some things. And I would be like, you know, dad, what are you writing? Is that a to-do list? You know, what's going on here? And he said, whenever, whenever he felt something that he couldn't identify, you know, whether it was just some weird feeling or some uncomfortable discomfort, something like that, he's like, I need to figure out what's going on with me and the way I figure it out is I write some notes down on napkins. And it was funny because I have some of his napkins, um, Dr. Garfield, they always start out really funny. It's like 65 and sunny. Um, you know, just some, some really light things, 65 and sunny, um, need to take the boat out. I grew up in Buffalo where on the water where it was really cold, uh, need new rubbers for my work shoes. And then it would get deeper from there. And he would start going into the things that he was worried about, that was unsatisfying, that was bothering him, changes he needed to make in his self, in his physical life, in his emotional life, need to go and take Gloria, that's my mom, out to dinner. You know, he would look at his life would come out on this piece of napkin and it would always start out with the weather and end up with what was really important in his life. And as a result, I do the same thing. I'm not a napkin writer, but I will take even a bill. If I'm writing my bills, writing my checks out and I have a feeling I flip over that piece of paper and I start writing what's really going on with me. And it usually starts out with something as prosaic as the weather but as you unfold that, it's amazing what'll come out at the end of your pen. And nobody's going to read this but you. It doesn't have to be a fancy journal or some big, impressive anything. You know, it's just what's going on with you. You have to kind of identify and acknowledge it. Yeah, it's, it's reflection again. It's the ability to reflect on your life, to ask yourself essential questions about your life, about what's moving you, what's motivating you, what what you want to accomplish that, that leaves you feeling fulfilled. Those kinds of things are really wonderful to be able to document and reflect about. Uh, and it really, as I said earlier, it really blossoms during our wisdom years. That's that stage of life. 
And don't you think, though, you know, like, it's funny you said this book should be for, you know, anybody 50 or older should read this. And I'm like, I'm personally going to say everybody of any age should read this because the process of reflection, even if that's all you take away from this great book, that you need to reflect on your life and how to do it and what it looks like, you know, it's a real simple process, can help you create a life that you really want to live, that you're really excited about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that gratifies me the most is I'm getting all of these responses from people who have read the book and who tell me that they love the exercises in the book. I work very hard to try to articulate some exercises in the book that teach people how to do the kinds of things where you and I are talking about, how to reflect, how to be more introspective, how to, how to identify what leaves you most fulfilled. Regrets and what to do. There are all these things that can be identified and dealt with that people let sit in around as a burden for the, sometimes for the remainder of their lives that they don't have to do. They don't have to burden themselves that way. They can let go of that burden. And a lot of these exercises are directed at that very thing. Well, and I like that it's it's a letting go, not losing. You know, I think, you know, I teach senior fitness, uh, Dr. Garfield, it's one of the things that I love doing every Friday. I teach a senior fitness class. And we don't talk about all the things that we're losing. We talk about all the things we're gaining. You know, you can gain muscle mass, you can gain cardiovascular fitness, you can gain all these things. Aging doesn't have to be about loss. Now, do you have to shift? Do you have to adjust? Of course you do. But how you do that in the mindset, this is where we get into resilience, because I'm a big resilience girl. You know, how do we change things to work with our aging bodies? Doesn't mean loss. It can mean a lot of gain. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting you should say that, that, uh, that there are ways to preserve your, your physical prowess and your mental prowess as you, as you enter the wisdom years. There are actually two conceptions of later life and that are dominant in our society, and both of them are very incomplete. One is the decline, which you'll, you'll appreciate this, the decline and debilitation model. Everything's declining. Everything, I'm debilitated now. I'm just waiting to die. That's what I hear. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And there's nothing I can do about it. That's obviously not true. You see all these bit older people. I go to a gym where I see all these people who are in their 70s, sometimes in their 80s, working out in a way I never would have guessed 40 years ago. They're doing extremely well. And but the other incomplete model is I'm as good as I ever was. Nothing's different. Nothing's changed. Well, ask anybody who's 75, if they can do the same things as they could do when they were 35, and they'll laugh at you. Of course not. Right. They can do other things. The whole point is there are other things they can do that are better than anything they could do when they were 35. And it has to do with fulfillment and aliveness and leading a life that you can feel best about, that you're constitutionally suited for. What's the best life you could be living right now? And how do you orchestrate that life? That's a lot of what the book is about. It is. It is. And it's a lot about, you know, I teach most of my classes are on a, on a, a bike, you know, on a, a stationary bike. And it's interesting to me that a lot of people who come into my class and I have a nice full class and we play music from the 50s, 60s and 70s. You know, it's all 
you know, music that, that everybody's either grown up with or learned to love or associate with certain times in their life. And it's so much more social. And I think about all the years I spent like face down in the water in the pool or lifting weights by myself. And now to see the senior fitness is so much more social. You know, everybody's on the bikes, they're talking, they're sharing, they're talking before class and after class. And I thought to myself, my gosh, all the years I spent in the gym, I was so lonely. You know, I did all solitary things. And now I look and I go, when I teach my class, I think about how social it is, how much fellowship, how much fun and sharing there is. And these ladies get a great workout. I have one lady who cannot walk anymore. Her husband and the gym owner lift her on the bike. They put her feet in the pedals. And even though she can't sustain her body weight walking, she can ride. And if you could see her face, Dr. Garfield, she's like a little five-year-old girl again. She's 81. She's on this bike just moving and enjoying and loving life. I mean, we have to adjust the things we do, but the joy, the fulfillment, can still be there. And actually sometimes more, like in my case, I have more fun now working out in my senior fitness class than I ever did solo or attending classes by myself. It's not surprising. You use the word joy, which is one of the key words in the book. Joy and happiness are different. They're different words. Everybody uses them interchangeably, but they're very different. Happiness is fleeting. You do something, it brings you some happiness for a little while, and then it fades. Joy has an enduring quality to it. You've discovered something that really lights you up, as we said earlier, that leaves you most alive, and you can't wait to engage it because it really is something that brings you a, a, a fundamental fulfillment, a, a, a joy that's ongoing. Right. It lasts far beyond the class. It lasts far beyond, you know, any number of things that happen in there. You, and you just feel good. You know, if somebody had told me there was a model for growing older and feeling great, that didn't require bottles of pills, that didn't require, you know, me to eat, you know, everything green under the sun and never enjoy a cheeseburger or some of the things that I love, you know, I would be suspect, but you'd have my, you'd pique my interest because you're right. There's the denial model, which is, you know, I'm not getting older. Everything's fine. You know, and I see those people, they're the plastic surgery junkies and, you know, I'm going to look 20 years old. I'm going to act 20 years old, even though I'm not. And then you have the other flip side, which is the, all my friends are dead. You know, I'm just waiting to die. It's hell to get old. And those are the people that bore you with everything that's wrong with their body. Well, my hip aches and, you know, I can't see anymore. And all of those things may be true, but when you meet people who have joy, they're not boring you with their ailments and they're not refuting you with their arguments that they're not aging. They're also not boring themselves. <laughs> They're leading a life that they most want to live. They've discovered the secret of our wisdom years, which is that it's a different set of motivations. It's about love. It's about work. It's about relationships. It's about creativity. It's about higher values rather than the kinds of things that motivated us when we were in our adult years, which had to do, as we said earlier, it has to do with success and achievement. Uh, this is different. People in their later years are not obsessed with to-do lists and calendars and, and uh, achieving this and that. They really want to get to the, the core issues, the things that really light them up. They realize they don't have all the time in the world. None of us do, really. 
and we don't uh, know. We don't know. That's the point. We don't know. So we want to pick the things that are the highest priority things, and those turn out to be love and work. Right. Right. And I think, you know, I was diagnosed recently with stage three cancer and I'm undergoing cancer treatments for it. And I will tell you, that's a really good kick in the pants to go, you know, how are you spending your days? How are you spending your life? And more importantly, Dr. Garfield, what are you thinking about? Like, I think that people need to think about what they're thinking about. They need to monitor their thoughts. They need to check in with their thoughts because our thoughts determine our reality. You know, they create the world around us. If I look around and think to myself, oh, you know, Corona's killing everyone. The economy's in the, you know, toilet, you know, riots everywhere. They're just killing people, anger, anger, anger. I'm going to now put on those glasses and see my world that way. Or I can choose to check in with myself and go, what are you really thinking? You know, how much does this stuff really affect you? Well, you know what? It really doesn't, Dr. Garfield. My kids are here with me. They're healthy. My dad's here with me. He's healthy. He's 86. He lives with us. And we have enough food to eat. We have a roof over our heads. What's not to love? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You, you keep talking about the same key ingredient and, and it, it, it's the secret and you got it early. You should thank your lucky stars that introspection, reflection, the ability to evaluate and to ask yourself questions about, is this working for me in my life? What needs to be working? How, what changes do I need to make? That's a lot of what we write about in the book, but most people don't get to that until after they retire. The word retirement is a key word. In the old adult model, you retired, you hung around a little while, you maybe got into an RV and traveled the country or played golf or went on vacation or whatever. And then you lived a few more years, but now the longevity is much greater. There's a whole stage of life. You know what the fastest growing segment of the population is? People over 100. Wow. Centenarians are the fastest growing segment of the population. So if you're 60, you could conceivably, no guarantee, but you could conceivably live 40 more years. That's an entire stage of life. Right. That's, that's what I call our wisdom years. That's why I call the book our wisdom years. It's a whole stage that we need to pay attention to because the priorities are much different. Well, and the abilities today are much different. You know, when I think of growing up and my grandma, she died at 94 and my great grandma died at 102 and everybody thought, oh my God, I don't want to live that long. I don't want to sit in a chair and watch TV. I don't want to, but then I would watch my grandma and she was, she was out talking to people in the nursing home. She would put her little chair outside of her room, you know, which overlooked this grassy area at St. Anne's. And she would be talking to everybody, anybody who wanted to come up, pull a chair. You know, she lived very much fully. And same with my grandma, Annie. They lived very fully up very much to the end. So why would we buy into a false belief or a false projection of what our life will be? Are we going to grow into that belief? Dr. Garfield, or are we going to adopt a belief that our lives are going to be productive and fulfilling and joyful and with that whatever life throws at us, like I got a cancer ball thrown at me, whatever is thrown at me, I'm going to handle and I'm going to keep going and I'm going to, I'm going to live a great life. I mean, why did we adopt such a dire perception of growing older? 
Well, I think mainly because the answer to a very good question is that the society's model for older people is exactly the one you want to avoid, that you're no longer useful, that as long as you're not working full-time and doing the kinds of, earning the kinds of things that full-time employment suggests, that you're, you're out to pasture. You're ready for the glue factory. It's all over, and I'm sorry, but you're just not useful to us anymore. And that's very different in other cultures. You see in indigenous cultures or in some of the Asian cultures, traditional Asian co cultures, they value their older people right. as, a, as a source of wisdom. That's who they ask for advice. They go to those older folks for advice because they've lived longer and learned more, hopefully. But we don't, we suggest to each other, unfortunately, in our society, that older people are no longer useful. And hence, we don't need to pay attention to them. We stash them in whatever places we have for them to live in, and we forget about them. And that's much different than other cultures and other times and places. Very much so. You know, I was watching an article on the television that they were doing over in England um, to help with some of the childcare issues for dual income parents. And they found that putting a daycare along with a senior center in the same place was really, really effective because the seniors had the patience to deal with the children for a couple hours a day. They could read to them. They could talk to them. They, they could provide this service. And I think of when I got divorced, Dr. Garfield, my kids were three months old and two and a half years old. And my parents lived down the street and they took over a big part of the childcare, you know, while I went to work. But my children came out with wonderful manners. They came out with, you know, all the great gifts, like you said, from the wisdom years. They, they were taught patience. They were taught understanding. They were taught grace. A lot of things that, you know, you're not necessarily going to get without having that multi-generational influence. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. Yes, that's exactly what you hear when people let the, the young ones get access to their grandparents and if, if their grandparents are the kinds of folks that clearly your parents were, they teach the young ones higher values, yes. the kinds of values you just expressed. And when you, when you have parents who are so busy working that they don't have time to do that, the kids never learn those higher values. Right. So they, they entered their own wisdom years much later without ever having the experience of valuing things that are about grace and resilience and caring and relationship and love. Well, and I think, you know, one of the neat things about, you know, when you talk about the wisdom years is always when somebody who's older and wiser surprises two obnoxious teenagers because <laughs> this year with my, my 13 year old and my 16 year old and my 86 year old dad, you know, we experienced COVID like everybody else. And my dad took the keys to my van and he went to Sam's club. And this was right at the beginning when everything was going sideways in, um, in uh, China. And he comes home, Dr. Garfield with toilet paper, with paper towels, canned goods, all these things and bottles of water, you know, whole truckload full of stuff. My van was full and the kids are like, mom, grandpa's losing it. You know, grandpa's crazy. What is grandpa doing? And then at the dinner table, he said to the, to my kids, he said, mark my words. 
he says, because he lived through World War II and he lived through Vietnam. He lived, he worked in Korea. He was in the military for the Korean War. And he said, there's going to be panic. There's going to be panic buying when this thing hits the United States. He's like, we're going to be happy that we're all fully stocked and set even before. And he said to me, you know, Stan, I'm watching the news. I'm looking at the internet. And he said, I really think this reminds me, he goes, it feels a lot like World War II. And he said, I'm worried about rationing. I'm worried about these things. And in the back of my head, even me, Dr. Garfield, was kind of laughing a little bit at him, going, oh, my God, you know, he's totally afraid. But then three weeks later, Los Angeles is completely out of meat, completely out of toilet paper. There's no water to be found. There's no, and we were sitting beautifully in our home with everything we could possibly need because my father had the wisdom because of his experience to see something the kids and I didn't have a prayer in seeing. Yeah, what's interesting about that and that I wrote about in one of the, the entire chapter in a book on what's called life review. He was able to review his life and ask himself, are there any other experiences that I've ever gone through that inform the present, that let me understand what's going, what's going on now or what might go on now? And he realized the rationing during the Second World War, and he had lived through it. He probably also heard stories about the Great Depression. Sure. And he, real, and he realized that things can get a lot worse than anything you might have ever figured out oh, because sure. you, you never lived through it. He lived through it. And so he acted on it. He's the kind of guy who didn't just worry and obsess about it, but he did something about it. And that's that's a, a result of life review, the, the ability to be able to look back at the long arc of your life and ask, what are the primary lessons I've learned? Right. And, and to be willing to take the risk of being embarrassed. Yeah, well, embarrassed, I suppose. And, uh, but, you know, his, his family is going to love him no matter what. Sure. Even if he overdoes it. But what's the worst thing? You ask yourself the question. We have this in the book, too. What's the worst thing that could happen if you do what you're intending to do? Well, you'll have a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of supplies. You'll use it up eventually anyway. And uh, you would have felt better while this is all going on that you wouldn't have to deal with a crisis. Um, instead, he turned out to be correct. Right. It turned out he did exactly the right thing. He did. And the kids, you know, the kids got some real grudging respect because they went from calling him Grandpa Bunker, you know, like the bunker mentality, to all of a sudden, like, Mom, there's no toilet paper. There's no paper products. We can only get two chicken breasts. Like, this is crazy. You know, they, they were blown away. And I'm like, yeah, and your grandfather called it. Right. Absolutely. That's the wisdom of our wisdom years. Yeah. Now, so let's talk a little bit about reflection because I'm a big, obviously a big reflector. Um, and I like to reflect even, you know, after I listen to a show like this, or maybe I watch something particularly moving on the internet or on television that makes me think, I really worry about our current generation because I'm raising two of them. And they're not really taught to think. And I think a lot of times we get so used to rote delivery. You know, I do the dishes, I clean the house, I, I go to work, I do the same roughly 50 different tasks every day. Maybe there's a little variation, there might be a little problem here and there. But when you look at your life and the routineness of it, it's easy to go on autopilot. And I think our ability to think is, is compromised. 
you know, when we don't think about what we're doing or stop, like when they say stop and smell the flowers, I don't think they really meant us to smell the flowers. I think they said stop and, and take stock of where you are, of what's going on in your life. And what, what are you feeling? Like your feelings are great indicators. You feel feelings are information. Feelings are very important. It's not just about thinking, and you're quite right. We're never taught to think very rarely. Although there are courses now, you, you might know if your if your kids end up in in a class on critical thinking, yes. it's that, that's exactly what they're being taught. Most people don't think; they just have thoughts. The thoughts right. pop into their mind, and then they do something about it or not. But thinking is something different. It's an active process. You actually you engage in thinking, mm-hmm. and you also engage in asking yourself the questions about feeling. There are people who are thinking types who think a lot. There are people who are feeling types. Feelings are information. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to be a feeling type. I'll get feelings first, and then I'll ask, what does this mean? What's going on? What am I experiencing here? And the thoughts come after the feelings. Uh, but all of that is stuff that you can learn. These are capacities or talents that you can learn. And you and people in later life tend to have them develop at a far higher degree, to a far higher degree than people earlier in life who are racing around and doing stuff. Right. Well, and just teaching your kids, you know, like I taught my kids this, it's a head check, heart check, gut check. You know, when you have to make a big decision or you're unsure, you know, what does your head say? What is your heart saying? What does it feel in your gut? A very simple three-step process, head check, heart check, gut check. And that little three-step process has helped me make a lot of really good decisions in life where maybe my head said one thing, if my heart and my gut disagree, well, now I have to, now I have to figure it out. I can't just react. And I think a lot of times we live in a very reactionary society these days where we, we react. You look on Facebook and you look at the dumb stuff people put up. You don't have to respond. Dr. Garfield, you don't have to react. You can actually watch that thing go through your feed and let it go. And I think a lot of these things are, they're not taught anywhere anymore, or maybe they never were. For me, it was taught a lot in the church. It was taught a lot at home, but my mother was home. My father went to work. It was a very traditional household. Um, but also we were always encouraged to read a big thing in our household. We didn't have a lot of money. We had one television for the, uh, for the eight of us and we'd go to the library and we were allowed to pick whatever book we wanted. We could go to the half price bookstore, pick whatever book we wanted. Now everybody's inundated with media, but the choices that you make have to be something more than knee jerk reaction. Absolutely. Again, the ability to, to, to think well, to reflect well, to evaluate well, and the, the, uh, the willingness to do that, that you find much more among older people than you yeah. do among younger people. For older people, they grow into those capacities. It's part of the developmental process of going, growing older for many people. They're able to do it naturally as opposed to earlier in life when we're, as we keep saying, racing around doing stuff and and trying to check off items on a to-do list. Uh, You're very smart in teaching your kids these abilities, the the way to check themselves out in heart and gut and in mind. These are very important capacities. And if they learn them earlier, they'll be in much better shape later on. 
Right. Well, and that's, you know, I was, I bought recently um, a life design course from Stanford. You know, these two guys, one guy was an Apple guy and I forget the other guy. And they, they put this course together at Stanford called a life design and they sell a book and a workbook that goes with it. You know, I would say it's like the companion to this one for young people. You know, your book is for middle-aged and up and I call middle-aged 40 and up. I think should read this or 35 and up. Cause I also think you get a jump on things. Like I wish I had this book 10 years ago, Dr. Garfield, because I wouldn't have spent so much time wondering if I'm okay. You know, if, if, if this is, if something's wrong, something's broken with me, if I had been prepared that there's a possibility that these changes might happen, you know, with ladies, they talk about the change, you know, in their bodies when they are older and people talk very comfortably in my generation about hot flashes and the things you can do and all this stuff. So it's not a mystery. If we could demystify some of the changes that happen us emotionally, psychologically, spiritually as we age, it'd be great if this could be as common as talking about hot flashes. It would be great. It would be great if we were able to, if it was a natural kind of thing in our discussions with each other about getting older and what, what those capacities are that develop, what those talents are that we're likely to develop, how it's likely to play out. Instead of assuming that old age is just a continuation of adulthood, which it's not. Or just a continual decline, which or, it's not. Exactly, or a continual decline, which it's not. Um, this is something new. Because of longevity, because we're living longer, we're actually living long enough to enter a whole different stage of life. And you, you're right, the, the uh, inclinations, the intimations, the awarenesses start early. For many people, it's in midlife. You said 35 or 40. I hear this a lot. I ask older people, when did you first start to realize that you were motivated differently now than you were before? And they said, oh, it wasn't when I was 55 or 60. That's when I started really being aware of it. Yeah. But I had, I had this, the, the intimations of it earlier. I, I was 35 or 40. It was, it was midlife when I first realized that things were different, but I didn't know what it was. So I, so I forgot about it because I had my career to worry about, but I, I kept, it kept growing and growing. And by the time I was 50 in my fifties, it was really there that I knew things were different and I wanted to know how. Right. And you know, and it's not anything, you know, um, intense it's not anything unless you don't pay attention to it but it's like you know when you're in high school and I watch this with my kids there's all this change happening you know as they prepare to go off to college prepare to be a you know young adults prepare for this there's a big there's a big like intellectual shift there's an emotional shift there's all these shifts well then there's another shift that happens to many of us when we get married and then there's another shift that happens when we give birth to, at least it did for me, when I gave birth to both of my sons, I shifted after each one. You know, value shift, priorities shift, intentions shift. You know, how do you want to live your life? The life I wanted to live at 25, you know, running around Los Angeles like a lunatic with my hair on fire, making all this money in real estate was the exact opposite of what I did at 35, where I'm welcoming my children into the world and I want to have this experience with them. And I think it should be just as natural, you know, as the empty nest, as natural as, you know, hitting your 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, there's all this different stuff that we do. We change our workouts as the decades advance. Doesn't mean we stop them. 
doesn't mean they're any less fulfilling, but we might shift a little bit from 30 to 40. We shift to a little more weight training for women than cardio. It's just a shift. And that's what I look at. Your book gives us permission to shift. And how the shift takes place. Yeah. What, what the priorities and possibilities are. Uh, it, it's, it's both an awareness that things are shifting and that it's normal and natural, but also what the nature of that shift is, that we're moving into a time of greater aliveness. It sounds strange because it's older, the older period of our lives, but it really is about greater degrees of aliveness, about realizing what's most important in life for me. For and me. That's, and and that's, that's what I really emphasize in the book. Well, and that's the one thing that hit me really clearly was the thing that you said for me. Because, you know, when you're going to school, yes, you're doing your college, you're doing your stuff. But once you have kids, at least in my world, you know, the kids become the priority focus. They have the needs, they need the instruction, they need the whatever. And as a mother, you struggle with that battle between my needs and my kids' needs, my need and my family's needs, my need and the company's needs. You know, there's all these things pulling at you, but as your kids age out and as your parents either go into a home or pass on, all of a sudden you're like, wow, I've got time for me. And I know when that happened to me after my mom passed, um, all of a sudden I had all this extra time and I didn't know what to do with it, Dr. Garfield, because I was always giving it away, giving it to my company, giving it to my kids, giving it to my mom and dad, giving it to my friends, giving it to my charity work. And then all of a sudden I had this lump sum that arrived, you know, the, the month my mom passed away, all of a sudden this big lump comes to me. And then I'm like, okay, now what do I do with it? Am I going to continue to give it away or am I going to construct it so that I'm really happy. And I thought it was selfish at the time to take that time for me. There's a big difference between selfishness and self-compassion. A big difference. And it's important to get that difference. Selfishness is when you do something for yourself that really makes no impact in the world in any other way except your own personal needs then that can be useful. But self-compassion is different. It's an understanding about what you most need. What, what is, what is most consti what's constitutionally right for you? And to, to feel the same kind of compassion for yourself that you feel for other people, like in your charity work. I'm sure that you feel a compassionate sense of wanting to do something good for other people. Well, it's just as legitimate to do something good for yourself. If you do only things for yourself, okay. That's a different story. That you could call selfishness. But when you reserve some of your energy for things that are good for you, that's called self-compassion. And that's important. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of us got that message, <laughs> you know, or we don't get it until later in life. And, you know, I, I don't think I'm the first mother to struggle with elder care and child care issues and work issues and go, where do I fit in the mix? What do I need? Um, and it, it reminds me of this funny story, Dr. Garfield, when, when we were little, um, we didn't have a lot of money. We were a very modest family. And when we did go out to dinner, which was a big deal, we weren't allowed to order sodas because that just put the bill up, you know, six kids, six sodas, you know, there's another $15 onto the bill. So, you know, we were very judicious that way. And when I went to Northwestern and I was surrounded by all these really wealthy people, I went out with a date with a guy and 
he said, order whatever you want, you know, order whatever you want on the menu. And I looked and I saw all these sodas. I see all these mixed drinks. I was so overwhelmed that I just ordered water <laughs> because it was what I was used to. You know, and with that, with that ability to make a decision, if you're not in your own decision process of making decisions for yourself, some of this introspection is going to be hard because you're not going to be able to make these decisions. You're not going to have the tools. No, you're not going to have the tools. And in our society, we're very outer directed. So we look outside ourselves for things for what we should be doing and what advice is important. What we're talking about here is looking inside, inner directedness, the ability to evaluate your own situation and ask what is constitutionally right for me. And again, the the things I really want to emphasize that I hope uh, people get from this is that there are two things that older people counsel more than anything else. Love, People they loved and who loved them, relationships, good, solid, loving relationships. So we were talking about the most important thing that people can counsel us on. You said it was something about love and relationships and people. Yes. And, and then, and then work and then work that you're most proud of work that made a difference, not only in your own life, but, but impact another person's life. And it may be your charity work. That's the most important to you as you get older. It may be the work that you do as uh, service work in organizations. You see older people volunteering for all sorts of things and doing really good work and being very valuable contributors to the life of a, of a nonprofit organization, a volunteer organization. Right. And helping somebody, maybe, you know, they'll never meet in their lifetime, but you also see people going for their dreams when they maybe were pushed to the side during the child rearing years or the, you know, acquisition years is what I call it. Acquire a house, acquire a car, acquire an education, those acquisition years and they start moving towards writing, drawing, singing, painting, sculpting, all these things that are an expression of something inside of them that's been held back for many years. Absolutely. When my, uh, I'll tell you an interesting story. When my parents first met, they met in an acting class after high school. My father was the leading man. He was a great actor. He was really good at it. And he wanted to be an actor, but it was during the Depression. And it was not a good choice if you wanted to make a living. So he went into sales. He was a salesman for 40 some odd years. Within two weeks of his retirement, he went back, joined an acting troupe, ended up as the leading man again. And I asked him, did you ever think about acting in all those years you were in sales? He said, I thought about it every day, every single day. I couldn't wait to get back to acting. It was the love of his life. And and he did it. The thing is, he actually acted on it. That's what we ask for people in their later years, in their wisdom years. If you have a dream and you only fulfilled it or didn't fulfill it, 
It is. It's important. It's important because I think now when you look at the second half of your life, what does that look like? What are you going to fill it with? What are you going to fill your time with? You might even... Third of childhood and adolescence. Then there's adulthood. That's the second third. And then there's our wisdom years. That's the third third. It's a whole special segment of our lives that have different priorities. Just like adolescence is different than adulthood. Well, our wisdom years are different than adulthood also. Right. And we can, we can, we can make those what we choose. There's no written script for what your wisdom years need to look like. It's entirely up to you. It's a blank canvas, just like whether you choose to go to college, whether you choose to join the military, what do you, what do you choose for your life? And I think empowering people as they enter into their wisdom years or even the years prior to think about what are their wisdom years going to look like? Go ahead and dream. Go ahead and tap into those things like your father had that were there all the time reminding you, don't forget about me. Don't forget about me. So Dr. Garfield, what are the kind of things that people who are in their wisdom years, as you interview them for your book, what are the most important things that they reflect on or that they shared with you? They talk so much about relationships, about people they loved and who loved them. And they talk about work that they're most proud of that made a contribution. And it may not be a work they were paid for. It may be volunteer work that they did. It may be helping a young child develop some capacity, some talent. Uh, love and work are the two things that are most apparent when you talk to older people. It really is a pleasure because they light up when they tell you their stories. When you talk to adults and they talk about what they achieved and succeeded at, there's a sense of drudgery, of grinding it out. There's not the joy that you see among older people when they talk about what, what they most value. Well, and let's talk about you had your you had a great story about your dad um, and about his desire to act. Can you share that with us? Absolutely. Yeah, when my parents met, they met after high school in an acting class, and my father was the leading man. He was a really good actor, and he wanted to go into acting as a career, but it was the Great Depression, and it wasn't a good career choice if you wanted to make a living. So he went into sales for over forty years. Within two weeks of his retirement, he joined an acting troupe, became the leading man in a series of plays. I went to see him, and the guy was great. He really knew how to act. And I asked him, "What did you, did you ever think about acting all those years you were in sales? He said, I thought about it every day. I couldn't wait to get back to it. And that's the sense. That's the spirit that you want to bring to what you do during your wisdom years. Absolutely. Now, where can we find this book? It's called Our Wisdom Years by Dr. Charles Garfield, Growing Older with Joy, Fulfillment, Resilience, and No Regrets. Where can we get a copy? You can certainly get it from Amazon. You can certainly get it from local bookstores. And you can go to my website, charlesgarfield.com, www.charlesgarfield, one word, .com. And you'll see all sorts of information about the book. And you can get it there as well. And now this is available in hardback and ebook. And is there going to be an audio book at any time soon? Um, we're going to do an audio book also, but right now we're, we've got an ebook and we've got, uh, of course, the hardback. Wonderful, wonderful. So check it out. Uh, Our Wisdom Years, Growing Older with Joy, Fulfillment, Resilience, and No Regrets. Dr. Charles Garfield, thank you so much for being my guest today. And we'll be back again next week. 
from New York City to Los Angeles, Powered Up Talk Radio is giving women of all ages permission to live the life they'd always dreamed of. Each week, Powered Up Talk Radio explores innovative ways to stay focused in a world that's experiencing dramatic changes. Find out who you are, discover your purpose, and challenge yourself to be all you can be. 